All right, hi everyone. I hope we've got some folks. Oh, we do have some folks already turning out. Uh, give me a little comment or thumbs up and, and make sure we can hear the audio since we have had some recurring issues with audio. <laughs> uh, let's get some, some comments going from folks. Say hi. I want to hear who's out there and make sure we're, we're coming across. So um, we'll get rolling in just a moment here. As soon as, oh, we're getting more folks. Some signals starting to come in. Glad to see folks turning up. I know you're all excited. I'm excited too. I'm about to introduce the guests here in just a moment, but um, yeah, just make sure, let me know you can hear me. A little thumbs up, got thumbs up? <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you, John Frather, thumbs up. All right, yay. Hi, Sebastian. Thank you for being on. I'm glad that you all are. Hey, Melton. Ah, all right, everybody's turning up. Hey, we got you guys are coming in from LinkedIn Live. I'm so glad that um, we just got that set up today. So it's exciting that got a new channel added to the, the live stream. All right, and Mark Bernhardt says he's tuning in from Wisconsin. All right, we've got, we're everywhere right now. Chris McLean, thanks for the thumbs up. We're gonna go ahead and get started then. Uh, I'm glad you guys can hear me. I'm glad that uh, it sounds coming through and we're good to go. So, pull up my, my notes here. All right, I know that you all are excited because the moment the announcement went out about today's guest, there was so much uh, joy and so much excitement and everybody was retweeting and, and sharing it like crazy. So uh, I know you all are excited to hear from Dr. Sophia Umoja-Noble, who is an associate professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, as better known as, in the Department of Information Studies, where she serves as the co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. She's the author of a best-selling book on racist and sexist algorithmic bias in commercial search engines, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Uh, that's from NYU Press, and we have Sophia with us right now. Hi, Sophia, you're on. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Kate. It's so great to see you, and I'm so happy to be here. Wow, it's such a thrill, and it's such a fun thing that everybody got real excited. You know, I think it's just, everybody knows that these are important conversations, and then of course to have people, you know, who, who I'm able to bring some folks into the conversation uh, in these last few weeks who are leading this conversation, truly, and you have been leading this conversation. You, you came out with this book, what is it, a couple of years ago now, right? 2018. Oh, what was it? 2018. 2018. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. but of you know, it has been, a, a, it was a work in progress for a long time before that. Yeah, I know it must have been, because you even say in the book that, you know, you were tracking these issues for a few years. Uh, and so and it's, it's one of the first, I think, that comes to mind for people when they think about algorithmic bias. So that's really cool. What's that, how's that been like for you in your own life since you wrote sort of the best-selling category-defining book on a topic? Like, what's that done for you in your, in your life and your work? It's really been uh, shocking, to be honest, because when I was writing the dissertation, which eventually a version of that turned into this book, I, there was very little agreement in the world uh, or with me that technologies could be racist and sexist. I mean, there were people like Wendy Chun, who uh, is you know a hero of mine. She's at Simon Fraser University 
who were writing about the implications of software and um, you know, there were uh, like a handful of women of color, really, uh, Lisa Nakamura, um, Anna Everett, kind of talking about all these different cultural dimensions of technology. But when when it got to talking about that the code could, in fact, be implicated in structuring racism and sexism, there was really very little agreement that that was even plausible. And so it's it's strange to go from uh, writing about it a decade ago in, you know, in the face of no agreement and really having a hard time getting people to uh, be in a conversation with me about that to now, you know, I mean, I'm at the beauty shop and I meet somebody and they ask me what I work on and I say, oh, I, you know, I do, I study and research racist and sexist algorithmic bias and discrimination. And they're like, oh yeah, let me tell you about those algorithms. <laughs> about it so in that way it's really it's joyous to to know that um there are a lot of people who want to have this conversation now and i'm really um grateful because there's the implications of of what's happening is so dangerous and it's so important that many 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 people need to be thinking about it and talking about it yeah i, I mean i'd argue everyone who especially who works in technology but beyond technology too because we're all affected by it Certainly. Yeah. yeah. And so what have you seen change in the industry since then, since 2018, your book comes out, it, you know, literally the conversation's changing, you help change that conversation. So now, uh, how do you feel like that discourse exists? What, what's changed about that? Well, this is the interesting part that I think the conversation has become more mainstream in the tech sector, let's say, and also maybe a little bit more in academia, which is, of course, deeply tied to the sector. Uh, but I'm noticing that the real uh, critique of the implications of the work is getting kind of defanged and depoliticized. And so how you see that now is that people are talking, instead of talking about algorithmic discrimination or oppression, which are the kinds of words I use, people are talking about things like bias. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that that does is it really, um, you know, it neutralizes the power of the critique by kind of devolving it into a, a set of arguments that, you know, everybody is biased, everything is biased. Um, and that's not helpful when we're talking about the implications of like life or death technologies. And also these things are structural. They're not just, um, you know, living at the individual level of how a coder thinks, right? Or how a programming team thinks or how an engineering team is oriented. And I think that is one of the things that's uh, really changed in the last 10 years is that now people talk about AI and ethics but they want to talk about it, I think, sometimes in a very thin register. And um, so, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And this is like many, many kinds of movements in the world where, um, you know, you're trying to argue about um, how health disparities impact women differently and more powerfully, how women are more likely to be, let's say, you know, um, victims of um, cancer, reproductive cancers, and then next thing you know, like a pink ribbon is on an iced tea bottle. And you're like, that's that's actually not what we were doing. 
trying to talk about. So, that's all we're going to do? That's not it. So I think that's the thing to be watching for right now is the way in which these conversations are increasingly being de- depoliticized. That's such an important insight. And you, so you had a journey yourself getting to this level of awareness, right? You came from advertising. And to come into academia and to be so fully entrenched and aware of what's going on within that space, how did you make that transition? How did you get from where you know you were working in that advertising world to where you know you're on the front lines of, of making sure that people re- recognize the weaponization and the, the oppression that's happening there? Yeah, well, you know, when I was an undergrad, I studied sociology and I was really into kind of the social sciences and humanities. I did theater. I was like a theater nerd too. And I knew we were going to be good friends. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, you're getting me to tell all my secrets now. <laughs> okay. So I, I understood the power of things like art um, and also statistics mm-hmm. to tell stories. And I was, um, I went into corporate America really idealistic about the kind of change. I felt that people who were activists and um, really like coming out of the fields of ethnic studies and women's studies were the people who could really make the difference in corporate America. And I was motivated and oriented that way. And, you know, um, yeah corporate America can really dull your knife, you know, if you aren't careful. And so by the time I was leaving the industry, of course, I was, um, I had been on the internet since probably, I don't know, 88 or 89. And uh, I was seeing all the changes that were happening inside the industry. And when I went back to school, which is where I really felt like I belonged and kind of the place I've always felt at home, um, I just saw what a disconnect there is between how people are making in corporate America and how products and services come to market and how academia is sometimes lagging woefully behind um, in in an assessment. And so that's kind of, it was just like, I don't know, two worlds kind of colliding. And I felt like in academia though, I would have the space to interrogate and maybe make a difference about some of the things I was seeing in a way that I felt I couldn't do when I was in my corporate job. But it's such an interesting background to bring to it because you are able to bring uh, such a truth-telling you know, clarity to, to the work that you're doing where you can cut through and say, this is not just a search engine, this is not just a social platform, it is an advertising platform and that's fundamentally what's, what's happening, what's underlying you know, the, the complications of the, of the matter, right? And that seems like that's part of what makes your work so so potent, is that you have that perspective. Yeah, well, you know, there were so many people who influenced me when I was in graduate school that I was reading. I mean, I read this book, you know, Siva's The Googleization of Everything really had a huge impact on me because I felt like he was writing what was happening, what I was witnessing, and of course his, you know, his new book, um, Antisocial Media, you know, I I felt like there were people who were writing, I mean, Frank Pasquale, there were a lot of men, quite frankly, who were writing um, in ways that touched me. And yet I felt that there was this dimension of like race and gender that was kind of missing or, you know, the way in which scholars sometimes write in a universal kind of paradigm about, you know, what happens to society. But of course, my own life, 
living in society, you know, I know that there are many worlds that are very different, many realities that are different. I occupy different worlds and realities from, from people who aren't black and people who aren't women. And so that was the part I thought I could contribute, um, kind of in dialogue with all of these other amazing, brilliant people who laid the groundwork. But I think, you know, uh, again, sometimes when women and people of color, when we're pushing a boulder up a mountain, which is what it feels like, you know, you're not sure if that boulder is going to roll back on you and crush you, or if you're actually going to get it over and kind of, you know, um, uh, get some like momentum and, you know, velocity. And so I'm really grateful that I could kind of get this conversation up over the mountain. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us are grateful too. Uh, for, first of all, uh, Nicole Radswell says, nice shout out to Siva. <laughs> so yay, everybody's appreciating that. I have a question from Dr. Siv Brown, who says, when you're teaching on this topic, what activities resonate most with your students and audience? Well, that's such a great question. Okay, so on a basic level around search, I'll often have my students do their own searches on Google and you know other large commercial um, uh, search engines. And um, I'll ask them to look for identities that matter to them, that are kind of like either their own identities or identities they care about. Um, and it's interesting to see the kinds of searches they do. So the, I say, you know, go do these searches, come back next class session, we're gonna discuss. Everybody's gonna get a chance to talk about what they found and what it means to them. And, you know, for some people, they, you know, I will never forget what I was teaching at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I had just like a, a disproportionately high number of white women in predominantly white sororities. And I think almost all of them had done a search on sorority girl and were pissed. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So where I don't think like necessarily that like searches on black girls and Latina girls and Asian girls that would surface porn um, at, at the in those years um, meant that much to them or like they couldn't you know they were sympathetic but not empathetic. When they looked for their own identity, they were disgusted. So, you know, often it's just those kinds of uh, experiences that are really helpful to help students um, feel the impact of the, the work that you're talking about. But, you know, I also do things like I teach my students a lot about museums and libraries. I'll have them go look for the same uh, people and communities that they care about in the library. Many of my students, believe it or not, have never even walked the stacks in a, in a major research library. Um, so I'll say, go do that. And this is also a place where they see the subjectivity of knowledge, where they start to realize, oh, you know, I was looking up like um, my sexuality and it was in all a, like in a cluster of books about sexual deviance. Mm -hmm. And I'm not feeling that, right? Yeah. It's right. And so then they start to see that like knowledge is subjective and it's political and it's meaningful and this destabilizes their trust in just like getting an answer in 0 0.03 seconds. That's so great to, to create an experience for people where they can truly dimensionalize and, and create the empathy that they may not have been able to connect with uh, otherwise. And I feel like I, it's my experience and I, tell me if it's yours that 
once you kind of can once you can connect that empathy it stays with you and you can you can extend it in different ways in ways that you may not have been able to before i think so you know i i had a colleague say to me once you know if you can just like touch one student in a class that and inspire them to like maybe go on to graduate school or to like really care about the things you're teaching them about that's you know like you've done your job and i and i I think more than one. Like I need a return greater than one. But I what he meant by it. Um, but I, I definitely see that. You know, getting to know your students is a great way to then pull in resources that are relevant to them. So I always try to know all the majors, for example, that are represented in my class, and I will adjust the reading schedule right after the first day of class to start to match up with things that they care about so that they can see like, oh, you you want to do cognitive science? Why don't you take a look at these things um, that are always kind of bringing them back to a critical interrogation of their own work and the, the things they care about, but also of these systems of, of control, surveillance, and power in our society. Because in many ways, those things are going to have a huge impact on their work and on their own personal lives. And I, I feel they have to leave the university knowledgeable about that. That's so smart. And we, we've talked about this a couple times on this show before about how you can al almost matrix out all the different facets of life and then put it alongside technology and say, you need to know about how technology is going to impact economics across different sectors of, of the different segments of society. You need to know how it's going to impact politics across different segments of society. So it's, it's brilliant to take people's majors and what they've already sort of declared an interest in and say, now, here's how this is going to play out, or allow them to do the discovery about how it's going to play out in their field. That's right. I mean, I, I always, for example, with, with their final papers in my class, ask them to take up the readings that we've looked at and the kind of critical thinking skills that I've taught them about this, uh, this domain and apply it to something that's in their field of study or their expertise so that the computer science students and the engineering students get to write about the things they care about but interrogate them differently in a way that I know they're not doing in their computer science courses. Or their I know. Hopefully they will, though. I mean, I feel like that's the change that, you know, your work and, and other folks in the space that are creating that momentum, that that kind of conversation will be part of the technology uh, majors, the, the computer science majors, all that. Yeah. Well, you know what the humanities and social sciences do is they give you a really great vocabulary for talking about the things you care about and for you know, looking at them closely, having a close reading, really being able to articulate and, and story tell what matters in, a, in, in the moment, right, or on the project. And I feel like students and, and people, not just people in the university, but all of us need to be able to better story tell why things work and why things don't work so that we can influence and persuade each other to, to move in directions that are, that are better, you know, better for, for everyone, yeah. um, just for a small sector. And, um, that's hard work, but I, um, you know, I, I feel really lucky to get to try to do that kind of work. Yeah, and so do I. I, I think that's that's the most powerful work. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you though, it seems like when you wrote the the book, and you know, in in the time that you were doing the research on it, it seems like 
we were mostly concentrating on algorithms online and you know kind of the the experience of being at a browser or whatever and, and typing in a search and getting the query back but of course now we know that all our experiences are so much more hybridized uh, so i wonder you know are you doing new research that looks at that inner integrated space and how how you know that bias and the oppression that comes into those uh, through those algorithms it's affecting people in their everyday lives Yes, and I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. You know, when I was writing Algorithms of Oppression, it was at the same time Kathy O'Neill was writing her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, and I met her at this convening that Meredith Whitaker um, and Kate Crawford did that was in partnership with the White House. This was during the Obama administration. And, you know, she was talking about... Um, how algorithms and AI are so deeply embedded in like banking and finance and all kinds of, you know, predictive technologies. And I was like, oh, I'm writing about that too. And so, you know, we, both of us, our books were about to come out. I think hers came out a few months before mine. And, um, wow, the landscape has changed so much. I mean, now there are so many more people writing brilliant books, um, that just, are amazing. You know, I think of Ruha Benjamin's, you know, new book, Race After Technology, that um, is so beautifully accessible. And, um, and, and people are studying, um, Virginia Eubanks, you know, the work, this work on um, social welfare, welfare systems. So yeah, there's no shortage of predictive analytics that are working across every sector of our society. And um, from the time that algorithms of oppression came out, you know, till now, uh, that the speed by which that has happened has been uh, um, remarkable, um, astound astounding. So I'm thinking about, um, I think people are doing really good, you know, jobs with that. Uh, at the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry at UCLA, you know, um, I've been looking at things like how the tech sector, um, undermines democracy by doing things like not paying taxes, by, you know, pulling the cream of the crop of the best students in the country into their projects, how it abuses workers, um, you know, just the, uh, how it unleashes products on society with no oversight by anyone <laughs> um, other than, you know, themselves, um, and, and what the implications of that will be long term. So, those are kind of the things that I'm, I'm working on and writing about right now. So you just had a big announcement today relating to your work there. Yeah, so we did. So we are really grateful. Um, we've been working with Julia Powell's, Dr. Julia Powell's and Bianca Wiley, who are um, at the Mindaroo Foundation, who have um, established a global network of critical scholars who are kind of taking on big tech or the implications of big tech, let's say. And uh, we're so at UCLA, we are going to be one of the nodes in the network. And we were just um, gifted $2.9 million to over five years to stand up this initiative. And one of the things we'll be doing is working on policy uh, around these kinds of things that I'm talking about, but also culture, culture making and counterculture making activities, because we feel like, you know, the sector has really um, created a culture that fetishizes itself, right? And uh, yeah. we'd like to introduce, you know, other ways of, uh, and other kind of cultural takes, hot takes on what on what the implications of these projects are. So um, 
I hope that people who are interested in this will like go to our site at c2i2.ucla.edu, subscribe to our mailing list, follow us on Twitter, and just um, be in conversation with us because we really want to um, do culture jamming and, and policy jamming kinds of work. And I think it's going to be a, a very experimental and exciting time to, to be working on, on these things. For sure. And congratulations, by the way, we have uh, Dr. Siv uh, again pops up to say awesome congratulations in all caps. So uh, thank you for sharing your congratulations, Dr. Siv. Uh, yeah, I noticed that your agenda, as stated on, on the site, is so tackle lawlessness, right? Empower workers and reimagine tech. And those are three powerful declarations of what you plan to focus on. Yeah, I mean, my focus in all of that is I'm thinking about things like the lawlessness of tech uh, in, again, kind of tax evasion, um, uh, you know, undermining democracy, not just in the United States, but in many modern democracies around the world. What does the sector owe back to the public um, in terms of repair um, and restoration? And so I'll be working on things like restoration and reparations and imagining. Um, and, you know, again, I will put it like in this paradigm um, and kind of where I'm writing right now. Um, there was a time when people couldn't imagine the American economy without big cotton and the labor relations of enslaved Africans and of um, occupation of indigenous lands. Like that was the model and it was, um, no one could imagine beyond it, but there was a small group of people who were abolitionists. And I certainly probably would characterize myself as a, I fancy myself a tech abolitionist. Tech and, abolitionist. And, yeah, I, mean, I, think, I love it. And that, you know, there's just a small group of people who are always saying like this, the morality of this isn't right. The immorality, we have to reimagine the American economy. And, you know, I, I've been um, laughing, you know, I've been telling the story that I'm sure my, when my mom was delivering me in the hospital in Fresno, where I grew up, where I was born, um, had like a cigarette hanging from his mouth, you know, I mean, there's like no question that, um, you know, the seventies were just all about that. And, um, in the eighties and, and then we had a paradigm shift about big tobacco. And the people who had been doing the, the activist work and the researchers who had been saying big tobacco is a public health, creating a public health crisis. We can't afford this. It's too extractive. It's it, it, we're paying too high a price. They shifted the paradigm. And, you know, my students now, they can't imagine that people were like chain smoking in the hospitals. Right. right? Uh, you know, in all kinds of places. So I think about big tech, you know, in, in that model that um, how could we look at other historical moments and take a longer view on this era that we're in and maybe reimagine something uh, far less harmful and maybe even helpful. Wonderful. We have a question from the audience. Uh, she says, I, Laura, Laura says, I'm curious if you think that predictive analytics can be used ethically, emphasis on can. Our company has shied away from using them, but it can make it challenging to compete with companies that do use them heavily. 
This is the challenge with predictive analytics. Okay, of all ca all technologies and systems that rely upon classification and categorization systems, and this to me, I mean, this is where my library science nerddom is really, uh, has me kind of anchored to the fact that all forms of classification and categorization um, have implications. So the question is, what are the implications of the kinds of classification systems that you're using in order to make your predictive analytics? Most of the ways in which the technology is oriented is really around like binary classification systems, um, you know, binary code, and that it already um, is a problem. It's certainly a problem around gender. It's a problem around um, uh, race. Um, it, the, the things that these kinds of classification systems do to reify, you know, power imbalances um, and exploitation are very important. So I think the question is, is it possible to make classification systems that are not um, harmful? And that is actually probably a more important, you know, question we have to ask before we can get to the deployment of the predictive analytic. Yeah, it really is an interesting uh, question there because, I, so I've said for years that my favorite book title is George Lakoff's Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, What Categories Reveal About the Mind, and that taxonomies are not neutral. Like, there's nothing neutral about any kind of categorization or classification you can ever do. You're imposing some sort of opinion, judgment, whatever, into the categorization. So yeah, it's an important point you make. That's really it. And you're also creating s social structure through those categories. And what we know is that those categories have always existed, at least in the Western context, as hierarchical. So if your categorization system puts, you know, it has you have a racial classification system like we have in the United States and many other parts of the world where white is the highest valued and most um, resourced and most powerful and black is the antithesis of that and the binary and everything in between is vying for its relationship to power or powerlessness um, that those systems become real so the question is um, you know how do we create systems that aren't hierarchical and where power is not distributed along those lines of classification or categorization. And we have not solved that. Um, instead, we are reinforcing those systems of power over and over and over again. Right, right. So I know a lot of companies want to try to do something about this within their own systems, or at least there's lip service given to wanting to try to do something about the bias and the, the oppression that happens within their systems. But I, I, uh, I saw that in 2019, according to the Artificial Intelligence Index report uh, put out by the uh, Stanford University's Human Centered AI Institute, it said only 19% of large companies surveyed said their organizations are taking steps to mitigate risks associated with the explainability of their algorithms, and 13% are mitigating risks to equity and fairness, such as algorithmic bias and discrimination. So clearly, even if there's a lot of lip service to it, there isn't a lot of action. And I wonder if you have um, concrete steps or recommendations that you're able to offer. And academia doesn't typically offer you know, concrete steps into corporations, but I wonder if you have recommendations for, for companies that want to you know, do some mitigation and make sure that they're, they're taking steps. 
Yeah, I, it's it's difficult because the algorithms and the AI and the predictive analytics that are coming out of industry are optimized for profit. So that's one of the challenges here is that, um, let's say, capitalism and uh, multiracial democracy might be at odds with one another. Um, so we have to figure out the degree to which industry feels um, it must be responsible for in which it's shaping our societies. Um, and we haven't done so well there. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, if companies are serious about this, then they also have to be serious about the role that their companies are playing in the world. Um, you know, should it be profit at all costs? Um, when is enough enough? Um, uh, you know, when is being profitable enough enough? And I think that, of course, there are many great scholars out here. I think, for example, of a, a, a group of scholars uh, that I work with out of NYU um, called the Center for um, Critical Race and Digital Studies. And um, you can find us um, uh, uh, with a kind of simple query on NYU uh, Center for Critical Race, and I'll, I'll send this out, and Digital Studies. We have a lot of readings there. Um, where you can get educated, people who work in industry and tech leaders can get deeply educated about the implications of their work. Um, at C2I2 on our resource page, we also have kind of 15 plus books at the intersection of race and technology that we think people in the in a variety of industries should be reading. Um, I know there, you know, since the week of June 8th, and um, you know, in this moment where we're calling for um, justice for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, organizing uh, in this new civil rights, you know, extended, let's say, civil rights movement um, of Black Lives Matter, that many tech companies in particular, but also other companies, financial tech and others, are reaching out to scholars and bringing us in and asking us to educate them. So I think, you know, it takes that and it also takes a real, you know, a, a longer term concerted effort to figure out, um, you know, the ethical um, framework uh, that a company is, is working in. And um, those are complicated long term conversations. Yeah, it makes me, it makes me think, it makes me wonder how much of the underlying issues and, and the reluctance to mitigate those issues have to do with either incentives or the transparency that it requires or the equity that isn't shared uh, at the table, uh, as opposed to, say, the technical difficulty that it would take to go through and sort of clean up that system. Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, I think the fact that we have no meaningful regulatory framework right now in the United States is a huge issue because we know, for example, that most companies that have historically been implicated in um, uh, discrimination all the way to the technical level, which I would say would be by uh, banking, finance, insurance, right, as like right, out, right off the bat, um, those companies, those industries didn't really start to um, address redlining um, in their products and services until it was against the law. Mm -hmm. So we know we have to have more than just kind of the fox guarding the hen house. We need regulators to get serious about the discriminatory effects of many of these technologies. And that will be one way that companies will be forced to kind of comply with the law. Um, I mean, Facebook 
you know, itself never, it, you know, we know that like they hadn't even considered things like EEOC or Civil Rights Act um, or housing discrimination law in their own products and services. And it wasn't until, um, you know, Congress got serious about calling to them to the carpet or the Federal Trade Commission got serious about that that they um, started to um, examine their products at a technical level. And of course, at a technical level, the challenge now is that for the big tech companies, they um, they don't know how to fix some of these problems. Um, they, they think, or maybe let's say they um, profess that they will solve these things with AI, that they will kind of automate the fixes. But we know that in fact, their automation are human beings. And this is where the work of people like my colleague and collaborator, Sarah Roberts, and her work on, you know, helping us understand this, these armies of content moderators, for example, around the world, that it's human beings who are implementing these decisions. And um, the real policy decisions are getting made by the lowest paid, most vulnerable workers who touch content that might be discriminatory. These cannot be fixed um, necessarily at a technical level. And, um, this is where I think, you know, we'll have to figure out, are these companies, in fact, just too big um, to fix their the problems of their own making? Yeah, that's a huge conversation. We, we got into it a, a, the last few episodes, too, about the human moderators and the work that Casey Newton and other uh, investigative journalists have done in exposing some of the conditions that some of the Facebook moderators work in, and for example. But it seems like, I mean, it is going to be a real thorny thing to try to figure out how to create the right kinds of regulations or what, what is, what, how much of it is going to be about breaking up pieces of the companies, how much of it is going to be about creating the right incentives or disincentives, how much is going to be about requiring the right kinds of uh, transparency in the algorithms and the, the AI uh, and, 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 and more, I'm sure, more than what I'm, I'm thinking of. Yeah, I mean the challenge here is that really in the in the social media space, in the search space, um, you know, we're talking about uh, and in the hardware, I would say space, you know, we're talking about monopolies, and um, so the very um, you know ground upon which internet-based companies came to the fore was in the wake of breaking up big um, telecom monopolies, right? And so I think it's interesting now that, um, you know, that in internet-based um, companies are, in fact, monopolies. And this means that um, consumers have very little choice. It's very difficult to um, have um, harms addressed or redressed because we don't have a legislative um, apparatus that is literate enough quite frankly, to even understand what these technologies are um, and what their harms are. And I think that, you know, that could change. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of work to do uh, to not only help the public understand what's at stake, but, you know, when when social media companies and, and big tech companies like Google say, you know, YouTube, you know, say that they're not media companies, and try to skirt responsibility for the content that moves through their platforms. You know, we're you know we're in dangerous territory because um, they indeed are responsible for the content that moves through their platforms and. Um, much of their content, I mean, one of the most dangerous things we can see right now is the flood of disinformation that's moving through these platforms as we uh, uh, rapidly, uh, you know, pummel toward the presidential election 
and all the down ballot elections. And um, uh, a lot is at stake if we aren't serious about looking at this sector. Yeah, and I, so I've been uh, advising groups in other countries as well as they kind of hurdle toward regulations. I know Brazil has been uh, dancing around different kinds of regulations and they're having a lot of the same issues around misinformation and coming up on, on various political elections that are, are critical to, to those countries. So uh, comment from uh, Bruce Sellery says, crazy to think that yesterday's disruptors are today's monopolies, but that's exactly right. It's a great point, Sophia. Yes, that is the situation. And, you know, it's it, it, when I think about Brazil and the United States and other places around the world, you know, the UK um, and the disruption to kind of the way democracy works and in all of our countries, um, <clears throat> you know, people thought that when the Cambridge Analytica um, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a scandal because it's just like the the business operations of Cambridge Analytica. When that you know came to the fore, people were you know like stunned. And I thought, I remember first reading about Cambridge Analytica before it became a big story. And I remember kind of watching them, and uh, I was like, the whole internet is Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> internet is brokering and selling and making data profiles about us and micro-targeting us um, and making digital profiles about us that we'll never know about, that we'll never be able to see, that we can't intervene upon, and that are um, making, again, opportunities and foreclosing others. And this is where, you know, Shoshana Zuboff's, you know, book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism is so um, important. You know, I always thought if my, that my book might be a book that you shouldn't read at night before you go to bed because it might give you nightmares. But then I read Shoshana's book and I was like, well, 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 well. She nailed that category. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, again, the thing that I would add to her critiques about how these predictive technologies are so... Um, opaque and embedded in, in every move all the way down to like, you know, our ovulation, uh, you know, uh, tracking our ovulation, tra tracking, you know, every pimple, I don't know, tracking every question you answer right or wrong in the learning management system when you're nine years old in the fourth grade. Um, and, and what those will amount to is really, really um, frightening. But then when you overlay to me, the racialized and gendered power systems in our society, and you know then that this will have far more severe consequence for people who are already poor, who are already marginalized, who are already living, um, you know, under, uh, you know, uh, uh, threats of civil and human rights just by virtue of who they are in the world. Um, then I think, you know, to me, there's nothing more interesting to talk about and to to work on. And, um, and of course, this includes working with artists and people like you and, you know, smart people just to have these conversations. I mean, these are the kinds of conversations everybody should be able to have at the dinner table um, because they really affect all of us. Uh, you know, imagine what it's like for your, your four-year-old whose life is being documented on the web in every possible way and, you know, that you're unknowingly creating digital profile for that child you know, imagine what it's like that you will inherit 
the digital legacy of your family members and that that will affect your ability to get a mortgage or go to college or, or, or do things that you want to do in the world because somebody in your social network said something against the government. And of course, we already see these things happening. So it's not uh, the dystopian future. We're just talking about right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what's really important is that you have brought such clear language to it because as you say, you know, it's the, the sort of, you have the opportunity to talk about things like bias or you have the opportunity to talk about them in terms that actually call them out as oppression. And I, what I fear is that the, the, what it takes to really understand what happens at that whole, the whole internet is Cambridge Analytica level <laughs> is that you have to be able to think about meta systems upon meta systems and understand not just how you know, the internet is connected and how data collection and monetization systems happen. But obviously, of course, underneath that, the, the societal structures of systemic inequities and, and everything that happens at that meta system level. And so to have those kinds of conversations in an articulate, disciplined way, you need to be able to call them out as the truths they are. And I think, you know, using words like oppression certainly help bring that clarity to, to it. Yeah, I really agree that um, all of these are interlocking systems of oppression. This is one of the reasons why I think people who are like intersectional, you know, who use intersectionality as, as theory to understand or feminism or black feminism or critical race, you know, that's what we study and write about are interlocking systems of oppression. And it's very important that we have um, clear vocabulary words so we all know what we're talking about um, and of course our words are in dialogue with other people's words like technology is liberatory or that it um, engenders more freedom or more connectivity I mean it was astounding to watch Mark Zuckerberg in the antitrust hearings um, a, a couple weeks ago where while the senator you know the, the, the members are saying you know could you talk to us about the way in which your products have collapsed democracy? And, you know, the answer is like more connectivity. <laughs> and yeah. then it's like, could you talk to us about, you know, um, discrimination that happens on your platform and the ways in which um, people have been threatened with genocide through your, your project. And he's like, we're connecting more people. Right. So it's like the discourse that's coming out of these spaces are really, really powerful and amplified so much uh, more powerfully than, you know, what I'm saying. So I think we have to be really clear and get our vocabulary words um, straight yeah. as we do this. And it also seems like, because when you start evaluating discussions around things like how are we going to tackle the, the issue of content moderation, and you talked about human content moderators, but then you think about when they're really are AI solutions, which you know mostly there are not yet. But but as there start to be uh, more and more machine learning uh, solutions deployed against this, I worry about that too. I worry about the encoding of of you know biases there and what's going to happen when uh, you know using GANs for example to to try to simulate bad behavior as just came out a few weeks ago that Facebook's doing uh, to try to create. Uh, some rules that they're able to, to process against, which in theory sounds great on, on one level of abstraction. And then when you think about what are you really codifying and what are you bringing into scale, that's what I worry about. So yeah, there's these systems upon systems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right to worry about that because 
at the level right now of a business operation used, you know, across many of these platforms, YouTube, I mean, all kind of many, many different major platforms, um, the human beings can't get it right. So if you already have, you know, a, a, a corpus of decisions that have been made by moderators and those have not been good decisions, well, those are also the decisions or the actions that, that are informing your machine learning model. Um, so of course we know. And, and, you know, and this one of the things I really try to impress, just like make this point in the in my book, is if you are a... Uh, part of an oppressed class, let's say you're black in America, but you're only 13% of the population, you actually will never be able to impact the algorithm. Even if all 13% of the population, you know, of the black population was in agreement, which we are not, about adjudicating harm, racist propaganda, disinformation, this kind of thing, still can't even impact the broader whole. So using these like so-called democratic methods are really um, unfair. Um, so we have to be more complex uh, about what we're talking about. And I'll tell you, the thing that's been interesting about watching countries like Germany and France, as they're working through regulating things like hate speech or propaganda and, uh, uh, and these big platforms, is that they have a much closer relationship in history to the Holocaust and understanding, for example, the role that anti-Semitic, anti-gay, um, anti-black propaganda played in the relation, like the, this, the, the legitimation mm -hmm. of cost, right? In the, in the dulling of the senses of the public that to the point that when people would stand on train platforms going to work in, in um, Germany, Jewish people would be being loaded onto train cars to be sent to concentration camps while other Germans were getting on train cars and going to work. Well, imagine that level of desensitization that would have to happen. And that happens through fascist propaganda, racist, anti-Semitic, these kinds of violent, subtle forms of, of discourse in a society. And that's what's happening in these platforms and it's being fully normalized. And of course, it's having a tremendous impact. I was just gonna say, it's the normalization of that speech and you just hit it there at the end. Yeah, it's, it's, it's having that just be surrounding you all the time and it be normalized into how can anybody have the stamina to keep up with fighting against that level of disinformation and misinformation. Yeah. So, it's, it's all, that's all very bleak, and I know we, we're working very hard to try to keep the worst from happening, but what do you think that we have to be optimistic about? What, may, what do you look at in this space, and what makes you feel hopeful? Well, I feel so hopeful because I am, uh, you know, part of a community of people in the United States who have, um, you know, gone from... Uh, you know, lynching, um, public lynchings, um, you know, being chattel slavery, not being considered human, to at least a, a greater possibility for our humanity to be realized. And so that is always for me so in the forefront of my own lived experience and my family experience. And so how can I not be hopeful? Because I feel like 
black people and black women in particular have been at the forefront of so many important movements for justice in this world. And I feel really grateful I was born into this package, even though it's also been difficult. And, um, and that makes me feel, I, I feel hopeful that there has been hope for hundreds of years in this country um, to make change and to realize change. And um, that's the kind of legacy that I feel like my work is, is in or tradition that my work is in. And so how can, again, I, I feel um, grateful and, and, um, and um, open-hearted that the world will be better, that it can be better, that it has already become better in some ways. And I also know that these struggles are not um, static. It's not like you win your civil rights and you keep them forever. Um, you know, African-Americans had tremendous civil rights. The, the, the moment in our history where we had the most um, rights was the period following Reconstruction after the Civil War. A lot of people don't even realize that. Um, and um, then those rights were rolled back through Jim Crow um, laws and um, night riders and the Klan and, and terrors, terrorizing our communities and burning down our cities and our, our banking institutions and stealing our wealth. And we had another civil rights movement in the 1960s. Um, and we're undergoing another civil rights movement right now after the rollbacks of the civil rights that's, that have happened over, quite frankly, the last four years most intensively. So, um, you know, we should never take our rights for granted. And I think we should read and learn from history. And um, that is a source of strength and power for all of us. That's beautiful. I think it's also such an important point that you made earlier that progress and freedom for everyone is not going to happen as a result of, you know, majority rules. Like the, the people who need the power because they need, you know, equity aren't going to necessarily be able to take that by, by power. It needs to be something that everyone kind of awakens to and that there's uh, an evolution of, we, we evolve to our higher selves, that we, we think about uh, you know, our, our roles in society and culture in, in that more evolved way. And I have to uh, bring up a comment that just got posted, never stop talking, Sophia, never ever please and thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's really hard and I'm really grateful that um, I, I have to say every, people don't even realize, every little tweet at me and every nice thing is very encouraging because um, you know, you never know people's private struggles and what their, you know, the interior of their life is like. And I will tell you that there is a time when I was so painfully, powerfully insecure to speak my thoughts. And um, it's really been um, a journey. And I'll just say that anybody who's ever felt small um, should try to let that go and just speak your heart because um, that's that's what we need in the world. And I'm really glad that, uh, you know, hugs by uh, like a thousand hugs and, and, and comments and encouragements really as, as what has gotten me here. And that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that transparency and that, that, uh, that kind open-heartedness too. Uh, we're getting such love from the comments, by the way. Uh, Dr. Sib says this is such a necessary conversation. Can't wait to share with Belmont students. And to that end, she also asked earlier 
can you recommend websites for educators to use to teach about algorithms of bias and oppression? I use the digital divide, filter bubble, and facial recognition resources greatly appreciated. So if you think of some right now that you can share, that'd be great. If you just want to send me some and I can include that in show notes, uh, that would be awesome too. Anything come to mind right away? Yeah, so the two, we have some syllabi um, at the um, Critical Race and Digital Studies um, website for at, for NYU, and I think that the URL is criticalraceanddigitalstudies.com, and, um, and there are some great syllabi there, and of course people have been um, organizing um, many syllabi through Twitter, um, and so I would say uh, we also have resources up uh, on our resource page at c2i2.ucla.edu. Um, and, you know, we'll keep populating that um, in the weeks and months to come because uh, uh, it's fun to teach students these things. It does seem like doom and gloom, but it really isn't because with knowledge comes power and people do feel empowered when they know more. I tell my students, I just try to, I want you to be the most interesting person at a cocktail party. I know you're 18 and you're not at cocktail parties yet, but give it a minute. Um, you know, you need to know things and to be an interesting person. And so I, I would say um, those two places are good places to look for articles and books and videos and things that we think um, are important. Yeah, I feel like I talk about this a lot too, that it's not necessarily that being, I talk about being an optimist, and it's not that being an optimist means you don't acknowledge the bad things that happen or can happen or are happening, right? Like, I think it's really important to be fully realistic and conscious of everything that's happening. But the work of optimism is to recognize the good that can happen and then steer our work in that direction. And I feel like there is no one who does that more clearly and with more eyes wide open uh, goodness than, than you. And I appreciate so much you coming on and talking to us on the show. Thank you, Sophia. I'm happy to be here anytime. I really appreciate the, this conversation. It, it, I'm going to have a great day. I'm so glad. Can you let uh, our viewers know where they can find more about your programs? I know you've given a few URLs already, but just uh, where can they find you and your work? Yeah, you can find me. Um, I like to hang out uh, on the internet uh, at Safia Noble on Twitter, um, where I always try to retweet and send out good things that I think are happening. And if you catch me on a late night tip, I might be being a little bit of a smart mouth. So just just leave it. And I'm on Instagram, um, safia.noble.phd. And I try to post some things there too and share out. And um, uh, of course, you can always email me, um, centerstaff at ucla.edu. And um, uh, I think, wait, go to our Twitter because I could be lying about that. That's a brand new <laughs> Well, c2it.ucla.edu is the, the centers. Oh, I right. hit with contact us okay. and you'll get right to me. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for tuning in and thanks to our listeners out there uh, on the podcast when that comes out. Uh, Sophia, have a beautiful rest of the day. We're going to disconnect. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.